welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. If anyone in the Bible had a right to be surprised, it has to be Job. Minding his own business and boom, he loses everything. It seemed that God abandoned him. It seemed that no matter where he looked, God was nowhere to be found. And yet Job knew God was still there. What about you? No Glimpse is a message from teaching team member David McNeely and covers Job chapter 23, verses 8 through 10. Thank you for joining us today. It's good to be here this morning. Good to see you. Now, if you have come to this service in the past, you know what I'm about to say. You are my favorite week of the year. And I really do mean that. I love this particular year for several reasons. One, which we've talked about in the past, we get to look back on the previous year and see what it is that has happened in our lives, what we liked, what we disliked, what we longed for that we got, what we longed for that we didn't get. We also get to look forward to what we want in this particular year coming up. It's a great week, strategically speaking, to think about life, to, to ponder, to dwell on, on, on what it is that life has brought. So it's good to do that. I mean, that's certainly one reason, but really my favorite reason is because uh, you have to make an effort to be here this morning. At this particular time during the year, it's after Christmas, it's before New Year's, you're exhausted from everything that's taken place a couple of days ago, and I'm certain that you are also getting mentally geared up for all the bowl games just as I am on January 1. So this particular week, you have to make an effort to be here, and that just makes you better people. Now, I'm not saying anything about people who are not here. I'm just saying you come today because um, you believe deep down inside you are going to hear something from God. Not because of the personality that's on stage. You come because you believe God's going to speak. And if you didn't think that, you probably wouldn't be here unless your mom dragged you here or your neighbor or your spouse, somebody. You, You may have come kicking and screaming. But you're here because you think God wants to say something. And for me this morning, it is a little bit ironic because what I want to park on for this whole morning is God's silence, his gift of silence to us. I don't know when you began your spiritual pilgrimage. Some of you may be here just investigating and say, look, I haven't begun a spiritual pilgrimage yet. I'm here trying to investigate and find out what it is that you guys think about this. And so you may not have begun one, or you may have been walking with the Lord for years and years and years. And if you have begun a relationship with him, regardless of what stage you're in right now, you probably can think back to that time in which it was just a sweet, sweet time with him. And you first began that journey. And everything just lined up. Everything went its right way. Uh, It seemed as though God showed up on every turn. (laughs) You know, you would go to the mall on December 23rd, and you are just fresh in your faith. You're saying, God, I trust you. I believe you. I know that. I need a parking space. And then the heavens break open, light shines down, and right there on the front is this spot that all of a sudden mysteriously appears. You go, oh, thank you, Lord. And, and answers like that are happening all over the place. And then as you got a little bit further in your journey, you began to notice that not all of your prayers were being answered in the same way. And why is that? 
You probably remember those initial days of meeting with God where you just got into his presence and maybe it was out in the woods as it was for me when I first began growing in my spiritual pilgrimage. For others, it may have been a particular room in a house. It may have been a room at at school, maybe a library, something, an office, I don't know, where you just met with the Lord and that was your own personal holy ground. You felt like Moses walking into the presence of God and you kicked off your shoes because you knew you were standing on holy ground. And every time you met there, he showed up. And you sensed his nearness. And every time you walked away saying, this is the most satisfying thing in all of life. And as you got a little bit older in your faith, notice those times were happening less and less. Why is that? I think, if not the driving reason, certainly one of the driving reasons is this. is because God is calling us to faith. He is on a relentless path to increase your faith. If you are a follower of his, if you have thrown your hands up in the air, surrendered the controls of your life over to the lordship of Jesus, God is on a relentless path to increase in you faith. Now, how does that happen? Hebrews 11 gives us a great indication, a great clue into this. Hebrews 11.1 says that faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. It's being sure of what we hope for. Again, not a hope in the sense of, you know, I hope today, uh, I hope that my team wins today. You don't know. They have yet to play the game. It's not that kind of a hope. It's the kind of hope that it says Christ says he's coming back. He says that he will return. And when he returns, he will take his children with him. They will meet him. He will dwell among them. He will walk with them. They will see him as he is face to face. They will no longer need that which is necessary, faith. They will, they will have everything that they need because they will see him. But until that time, God wants to increase your faith. And the only way to increase your faith is to make you certain of what you hope for. Sure of what you hope for, certain of what you do not yet see. So in your journey of faith, God will oftentimes remove his presence from you in order to increase a hunger in you for him. And that sounds counterintuitive to us all, does it not? I mean, we don't apply that same principle in human relationships. We don't do that with our spouses. In order to create a thirst for my presence with Judith, I don't say I'm going to remove my presence from her. I actually move towards her on a more frequent basis. The older I get, the longer we walk together in life, the more I'm trying to press in and get closer to her heart. She with me. Sometimes that's a lot of friction. Sometimes we really don't like one another. But what we're trying to do is to get closer and closer in proximity to one another. Wouldn't it be true that we would lack faith in our spouse if they pulled back? Wouldn't it have the opposite effect on us? When a father pulls his presence away from his children, do his children come after him more or do they become disillusioned? Why in the world would God do this? Hebrews 11 shares with us many, many stories of people of the faith who, who by faith set out to do many miraculous things that God had specifically called them to. 
And in verse 6, it tells us that it is impossible to please God without faith. It is impossible not being a statement of, of prohibition. That is a statement of incapability. It is impossible to please God outside the realm of faith. And faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Therefore, God says, in order to please him, you've got to keep moving forward even when you see less, even when you feel less, when you experience less. Move forward. So that's why on the front end of your spiritual pilgrimage, those early days, everything turns up rosy. But as you progress, it's a giant invitation, it says. Bob Cargo last week did a fantastic job of preaching a sermon on suffering. And this morning, I want to sit on that subject, not in the same way, though. So what I don't want to do is to talk about doom and gloom of life. I don't really... This morning, for our purposes, want to talk about losses that you may have endured in this past year. I am sympathetic towards that. I really am. Uh, I know many of us have lost many things this year, be it a job, uh, be it um, friendships, be it loved ones. Um, we have lost much, and I don't want to sit on that aspect of suffering. It would be right and appropriate to do so, but this morning I want to sit on just this one topic right here, this one subject of God's silence and how God uses that in our lives. And so Job uh, gives us some great clues um, as to how this goes about. Job is a book that nobody knows really when it was written, and we're not really sure who wrote the book. We, we know that there's a book about a particular man. Now, theologians debate as to whether or not this is an actual person or not. I, I really don't think it matters, to be honest with you. I've studied a great deal on this in the last couple of weeks, and I really don't think it matters either way whether he is an actual historical person or not. However, I do think he is an actual historical person. I think that others in the scriptures treat Job as if he is a person who existed in history. So we don't know who wrote it. We don't know when it was written. But we do know that it's written about a man named Job. And one of the driving reasons why this book was written, I think, is not primarily it's not about suffering, although that's clearly there, but it's written about wisdom. It's written about God's wisdom that stands over and against our wisdom. And so you're going to have a, a, a conversation that's going to take place between several people. Uh, there, God will have a conversation with, the, with Satan. Um, God will have a conversation with angels. Uh, God will have a conversation with Job later on in the book. There will be a conversation and a dialogue that takes place between Job and his friends in here. And that takes up the bulk of the book. The bulk of the book is devoted to poetry. They're speaking in a poetic fashion all throughout. Right on the front end is prose. It tells us the history of how Job got into this particular predicament. And then there's multiple chapters of poetry. And then towards the end there, God comes back and then God speaks again. And God says, I am the one who is wise. It is not you. They were trying to convince each other of their particular way. They were trying to make the other person understand that they were seeing truth in a way that the other person was not. So the friends gang up against Job in his greatest hour of need. And from the time they start speaking, they are spewing forth a mindset that we all buy into. Whether or not we believe it theologically or doctrinally, we believe it practically. Meaning we fall back into it on a natural basis. What is that? This belief that God rewards those who are good. And God punishes those who are bad only. 
Let me tell you why that's a, a bad, bad way of thinking. Because all throughout the scriptures, there are many people who are righteous, who are godly. Not that they are perfect, but that their life is Godward in direction. And God takes them through incredible suffering. And the psalmist also looks out and he says, God, why do the wicked prosper? We buy into this mindset because, yes, ultimately in that sense, it is true. God rewards those who are righteous. He punishes those who are unrighteous. That is absolutely true in the ultimate sense. There's a danger, though, when we apply it so narrowly in this world right now. So Job is written so that we might put on display the wisdom of God. It's going to let us know that Job is a righteous man. If you have your Bibles, open with me to Job chapter 1. Now I'm going to actually read through this fairly rapidly so that we can get to the, the text that we really want to sit on, which is in chapter 23. And this will not be on the screens, and I have a, a very specific reason for that not being on the screens. I want you to listen and to hear this. This is the context of Job. Job 1. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job, and this man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. He goes out of his way to describe to us that Job is a man whose life is Godward in direction. Scripture is not implying that he has no sin. It's saying that the direction of his life is towards God. If God says to do it, his heart is inclined towards doing it. Does he falter? Absolutely. But this describes his life. It lets us know that he has great abundance, crazy amounts of wealth. There's nobody like him. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And this was Job's regular custom. There's several things we could say, but the one thing I want to point out is it tells us that Job is not only righteous in his own personal living with his own life, he's also a righteous father. He's consistently giving the truth to his kids, and he intercedes on behalf of his children. Just quick side note, dad, you interceding on behalf of your kids? You, you do know that that is the single greatest weapon that you have. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. I just want you to see this. It is not Satan who comes before God in order to get God 
to do something to Job. God is the one who says, have you thought about Job? There are many of us here who would believe that God has nothing to do with suffering in this world. That God stands to the side and he is sometimes powerless even to do anything about it. He doesn't want it to happen, but yet it happens because of the fallen nature of the world. And so he just stands and, oh, if there was just something I could do. And that is not the picture that scripture presents all throughout. In this particular circumstance, you should not be afraid of this in your own personal life. But in this particular circumstance, God says, how about Job? It is God who initiates. And I think that the scripture is pointing this out for us again so that we might see God's wisdom rather than our wisdom. It's God saying, sometimes you are going to experience my silence and it will have nothing to do with your wrongdoing. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan required or replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hand so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Lord said to Satan, very well then. Everything he has is in your hands. But on the man himself, do not lay a finger. And then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Surely, if you take away all of your blessings, he will do what everyone would do. And that is to remove himself from you. You have babied him. You have pampered him. Of course, he's going to follow you. Of course, he's going to say that you're the most satisfying thing in life because you've done everything for him. God says, all right. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sabaeans attacked and carried them off and they put the servants to the sword and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. They put your servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house. When suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house, it collapsed on them, and they are dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And at this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. In a moment's notice, messengers come to him, 
and they deliver message after message after message that says you are ruined. Your net worth is now at zero. Everything that you had has been taken away from you. There is nothing you can do to rebuild it. The news comes and, and basically the message is you have no hope to provide for anything in life. And then the worst of all news comes and that is you have lost your entire family. And Job's response is to hit the ground. And it tells us he hits the ground in worship. That worship means literally to bow down with face forward, prostrating yourself. So he bows down. And he cries out to God, I didn't have anything when I came here. And so I'll leave without anything. In essence, what he's saying is, I trust you. Now, this is right after the news has been given to him. He is able to say this because of the relationship he has built with God. But now what takes place over the next several chapters, I'm going to summarize it for us so that we can get the context. Um, the messenger goes back once again before the Lord. He inflicts uh, uh, Job with all kinds of illness and sickness. His skin uh, has a disease, um, all kinds of personal stuff that happens. Now, for me personally, though, um, nothing would be like the news of losing your family. Um, okay, so I have bad skin. That's horrible. Nothing compared to losing your children. And so... What happens is then Job's friends, likely these are Job's trusted friends, intelligent, articulate, probably even godly friends, come beside him and for multiple days they do nothing but just simply sit with him. They come and do the best they can to take away his aloneness. And Job is the one who speaks up first. And when Job speaks, then they speak in response. And Job now is wondering where is the Lord in all this. He is wondering what the wisdom of God is in all this. He's trying to discern a rational reason as to why God would do what it is that he does. And there is no response. Do not feel an ounce of guilt when something happens in your life and you want to run immediately into the presence of the Lord and say, oh God, what is going on? Why? And know you are in good company when you hear his silence in return. You are not the first and you will not be the last. This is what is so perplexing to Job. In his greatest hour of need, but the desire to turn to the one, the only one who could do something to bring healing to his soul. Why is it that the only one who could bring healing is removing his presence? They try to convince Job that it is because of his sin. And Job says, I just don't think that that's what it is. I don't think that, that my sin is the reason that we're in this particular predicament. And so he then gets to chapter 23, which for me is the crux and the heart of the book of Job. In 23, he responds to this, this increasing, um, sarcastic, cynical attack that his friends are giving to him of saying, Job, you're a hypocrite. You, you, you have to be hiding something. God wouldn't do this to you if you weren't in sin. Hear their wisdom. 
In chapter 19, he says, I know that I have a redeemer. He's placing his hope on the person who in the, in the end would be his advocate before the Lord. He's trying so desperately to get into the Lord's presence so he can present his case before the Lord. Job also buys into a faulty theology, but he's trying to fight it. In chapter 23, he replies to his friends by saying this, even today my complaint is bitter. His hand is heavy in spite of my groaning. If only I knew where to find him. If only I could go to his dwelling. I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would find out what he would answer me and consider what he would say. Would he oppose me with great power? No, he would not, bring, he would not press charges against me. There, an upright man could present his case before him, and I would be delivered forever from my judge. But if I go to the east, he is not there. If I go to the west, I do not find him. When he is at work in the north, I do not see him. And when he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. Just a couple of things to point out in this particular passage. One, I want you to see his pursuit. I want you to see his desire, his yearning, his groaning, to see what it is that he was chasing after. He was searching after the Lord. He was not searching after frivolous things. He was searching after God. He was looking for the right thing. He was looking for the right person. It's not like he was trying to find satisfaction in booze or something else. He was saying, God, I want to be with you. He, he was under no misguided um, thoughts that there would be anything else that could do anything for him. Coming after the Lord. If I only knew where to go. If I go this way, I don't see him. If I go this way, he's not there. I, I go here, I don't see him. I go back here, and I catch no glimpse of him whatsoever. No glimpse even of him. C.S. Lewis says it so beautifully in a book that I read several years ago. It was at a particular time in my life when... Judith, uh, we had undergone a, a particular um, uh, struggle. This was before any children were in our home. And um, bottom line is I prayed my eyes out and could not find God. And someone gave me a copy of a book called A Grief Observed, and it was so profoundly helpful for my mind and my soul. Listen to what C.S. Lewis has to say in speaking about the grieving of his wife. Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you are tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption. If you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face. And a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. 
The longer you wait, the more empathetic the silence will become. What does it mean? Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in time of trouble? This is what Job is experiencing. This is what many of us have experienced in our search to go after the Lord. And we sense that he is silent in there. Why? Because there's a test in this. The test comes in the first half of verse 10. It says that he will try me. It's that word that's used in, in both Hebrew and in Greek. It's used both as a temptation and also as a trial or a test. And here it's used not as a temptation to sin. It's used as a testing of your faith. He gives the analogy of gold. He's going to put gold into the fire. He's going to, to be refined. What, what is that test? That test is our faith. Because it is impossible to please God without it. And faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see. The reason God would remove his presence is to give a grand invitation for someone to come, to keep coming forward. Can I ask you this? If God were to always grant you his presence, would we ever really get to the depths of what we long for? Or would we be so satisfied with just the shallow nature that we would not long for more? Spurgeon said this, if you long for God, it is a sign you are his. If God met you every time, everywhere, would you ever experience the deep-seated desperation of needing him. Lastly, what is the result though? The result is that he will come out as pure gold is what he says. He will test me. He will know and I will come forth as gold. Gold is never fearful of the fire. It only takes out the dross. It only takes out that which doesn't belong there and it makes the gold, I'm sorry, it takes away everything that is not gold. In that fire, what we find is a faith that comes forth as stronger and more fervent and deeper and more mature. Can I say it this way? In the early infancy stages of our faith, we have a very infantile faith. And here's what that means. It means, God, I will trust you as long as I can see you. And when I see you, I trust you. That's what small children do. When he goes away, faith goes away. We move into more of an adolescent faith, though, a time in which we are growing up. We get a little bit more mature in our faith. And, and this faith right here says, I will trust you as long as I can feel you. So we may not see him, but we remember the feeling that we have when we are with him. And as long as I am feeling peace, as long as I am, I am feeling good about my life and circumstances, as long as, as I don't have to see the future, but as long as I can sense deep down inside that it's okay, then God, I'll trust you. But God moves us into more of an adult faith, and the adult faith says, I trust you because you are you. Whether or not I see or feel you, 
This is what comes forth as gold. This is the reason why God sometimes removes his presence is because he cannot leave us in the place where our faith is so infantile. If he leaves us there, we will be blown and tossed away. We will leave. So he grows us, but he never, ever gives us more than we can handle. Think of it this way. Think of it that when we first begin our journey, we take our Father's hand and we just start walking. And wherever we walk, it doesn't really matter because he's the one that's in charge. He's the one that tells us where it is that we need to go. He's the one that does for us what we need to do. And we're just walking on this journey with him. And as long as we sense his nearness, everything is grand. And in the beginning stages of our faith, there are even those moments in which we just kind of sit down and we grab a place of God that is so deeply satisfying. And we relish in it. But then God, in his divine wisdom and mercy, takes us back and he puts us down. And then he asks us to now come and to follow. And this time he starts walking ahead of us. He's not with us. And he says, come, follow me. And then comes a time in which we can no longer see him. And he says, come. Then there's a time in which we can't even hear him say, come. We just know that the calling is extended for all time. It's easy to search after God when he's right there. It's much more difficult to search after him when we don't sense that he's there. But if you do, I promise you, he will work on you. The book ends with God coming back and showing up and God begins to speak. He talks again. He was silent for a while, but then comes a time in which he speaks. And when he speaks, it was unmistakable in the book of Job. He speaks with authority. And the book closes by telling us that Job got to experience an even greater blessing than he had before. And I think what this is telling us is very simple and very clear. That there is coming a time in which God is going to speak again to you. So my only, my only point of application for you this morning is just simply this. Enjoy and savor those appetizers when you get to spend time with him and your fellowship is so sweet. Enjoy that, savor it, don't brush by it, but know that it is only an appetizer. The full meal will not come until Jesus returns again. So, the second point, keep coming. I said he will speak to you again. He will probably do it in this lifetime. He will show up in some way. He will make his presence known. He will not leave you forever alone. 
But even if it doesn't happen in this lifetime the way that you want it to happen, it is going to happen in the future. When Job got more of his life blessed, he got more than he had before. That is the picture of showing us of what is to come. And so today I am calling you, child of God, by faith, choose to believe that you will have what you deep, uh, deeply long for. And if you have to wait for it right now on this earth, it will be worth the wait. Because in heaven, you will feast on him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, today um, we give you thanks that your son Jesus um, endured the ultimate silence from you, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you did not reply, but he did that on our behalf so that we might not have to endure for all eternity your silence. And so Lord, I pray today that you would increase our faith, that you would give us the gift of faith, that we would trust you because you are you. Unless you do a work in us, God, we will leave you, so help us. We love you, we are thankful for you, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day. Thank you.